Hello, and welcome to the Block Explorer. I'm Colin Brightfield. Hey folks, I'm Cash Upton. The Block Explorer is here to educate and inspire you about the world of crypto and NFTs. We'll do deep dives into critical concepts for understanding what's happening and discuss the current events shaping the space. We're making this podcast for the curious, the free thinkers, and the change makers that propel us forward. As we embark on our adventures, remember that none of this is financial advice and crypto can be risky. In this episode, we interview our new friend, Andrew Mejia, who recently visited El Salvador to research Bitcoin adoption and the feelings on the ground. This was an amazing episode, Cash, because a lot of the media we've been coming, that's been coming out of there has been hard to process what's actually happening. And there was a recent study that we actually just found that was published by the National Bureau of Economic Research. And it said that you know Bitcoin adoption is not going that well as far as the data shows, as far as the amount of people are using it. But it was cool to actually get an uh, boots on the ground perspective, right? Yeah, we learned a lot and uh, found found out more of the nuances uh, of the processing payment system, and and they're not uh, only accepting Bitcoin. There's a, a you know new cash uh, transfer method through this Lightning uh, network. So uh, yeah, I, I learned a lot, and it was it was really cool to get to talk to Andrew. Yeah, this is an amazing episode. So enjoy all this knowledge that Andrew can share about what it's like to actually have a country adopt Bitcoin as legal tender. Hi, Andrew. Thank you for coming on the podcast today, The Block Explorer. We're so glad to have you. And um, we're really excited to discuss what we have today with you about El Salvador and Bitcoin. A little background for our listeners. In September 2021, El Salvador became the first country in the world to make Bitcoin legal tender, and all economic agents were required to accept Bitcoin for all their payments. And the Salvadorian government also launched a really cool app called Chivo Wallet, which allowed users to both digitally trade Bitcoin and dollars and had a lot of incentives to download the app. So let's start a little bit with a background about you, Andrew. How did you first get into crypto, the Web3 space, and then what motivated you to visit El Salvador and research Bitcoin? Mm-hmm. So yeah, those are a couple of, uh, thanks for having me. Um, so I, the, I think the first time, my first uh, encounter with crypto, I, I hear this is kind of like a popular uh, way, you know, to get to know the people, right? And like what their first impressions were. Uh, I think it was my brother that told me about Bitcoin, maybe in like 2016 or 15, something like that. And he's like, hey, we should we should get into mining. You know, like I can I can buy some machines that we can mine. And, and I'm like, but can you explain it to me? Like, can you break it down? Like, I don't. I don't really know what mining means. I don't understand what, you, what we're talking about. And he tells me, <laughs> he's, he gives me like this technical explanation. He's very like meticulous and very technical person, but I just, it didn't click. I just didn't understand, you know, and I'm like, yeah, you know what? This is probably not, you know, this is, <laughs> doesn't sound like it's a very uh, relevant thing going on. Uh, a couple of years later, right? <laughs> You know, I guess like people start noticing when the value, you know, the market value goes up and uh, yeah, basically like everyone, I, that's when I kind of started paying attention again. And, uh, you know, just um, I, I think one of the the main uh, fundamentals that kind of made me kind of like get that little light bulb on were uh, Andreas Antonopoulos, uh, the, the Internet of Money. He has a he has a couple of books and and basically the book is a 
compilation of talks that he's given everywhere, public talks that he gives in different uh, different venues and different places. But it just conceptually wraps around this idea of what you know, crypto, essentially blockchain technology enables. Um, and you know, Bitcoin represents uh, this blockchain thing from the money standpoint. And then you know, well, as you know, <laughs> the block explorer, pretty you know, it's in the name there. Um, yeah, so a little bit of my background is um, I've been uh, living in Chicago for the for about 10 years. I'm originally from Argentina. I grew up uh, sort of traveling a bit. My parents moved quite a bit in South America. So I kind of traveled through, you know, several countries um, before I moved to the U.S. And I moved here when I was 22. Um, so, you know, um, I've been working in the insurance industry for a couple of years. and. Uh, about like three years ago, I started a video production company, kind of got into the space from, you know, just really, you know, as a as a hobbyist, as a lot of people tend to do. And then, uh, you know, things go formalizing and you start getting into different projects, a couple of like film festivals and stuff like that. And uh, just, you know, I think it's it's uh, amazing how how our society kind of has evolved into this, uh, you know, people consume media through their phones, right? Most of the times and we and we a lot of it is video in the video format. Like nowadays you go to Ikea and you purchase a piece of furniture and the instructions tend to be like it's a scan of QR code and you'll see a video. So everything is very visual. So I find it an incredible tool to to be able to communicate uh, to you know, transfer um, ideas or or even you know build uh, build concepts uh, visually. Uh, I think you you basically reach a huge audience. So, um, in terms of El Salvador, when the news before I I have to be honest, you know, before the news broke out that El Salvador wanted to adopt uh, Bitcoin as legal tender, I have to admit that I was not. I mean, I've heard of El Salvador as a country since I'm from South America, and you know, this is Central America, uh, but I didn't really have a an idea of like you know their history or what you know what you know. I didn't really know much about the country at all, and. Once this news broke out that they had implemented it, I saw everywhere, you know, there was a lot of, I think I, I read some like Washington Post uh, articles and stuff like that, where they were basically, you know, I, it just seems very kind of biased, if if you will, you know, like some of the information, for example, I remember reading an article of how they were portraying the president of the country, El Salvador, you know, uh, <laughs> buying crypto in on his phone naked. In his house, you know, like basically, <laughs> just, just. Uh, I never, you know, I never saw that article. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll shoot you a link. <laughs> I just, <laughs> just, just uh, things like that, you know, that are like obviously there's an editorial, you know, um, framing that is going on, right? And a lot of things, you know, basically like painting him as a very responsible person. It is a, you know, it is a big gamble, you know, that he's making. So. I read all these articles about, you know, the implementation and oh, not not even the implementation, more, you know, the novelty of of this decision that they, they that they took. Also, the way it was it was announced was also very, you know, uh, strange <laughs> to put it some. I mean, that's a general vague word, but but very strange in the sense that it was announced at a Bitcoin conference in Miami. It wasn't. This was not uh, advertised by like their you know official uh, spoke spokesperson and 
and the official channels. This was essentially a, a, conf- a Bitcoin conference in Miami, in a different country where the president just shows up with a recorded message. And he's like, hey, guys, you know, by the way, we are uh, implementing Bitcoin in the next couple of months. And everyone in, Sal- in El Salvador was like, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, where is this coming from? <laughs> um, yeah, so um, I basically decided to travel out there because I really didn't really i really didn't know anyone from el salvador and i really didn't know much about you know the situation and what's going on and also you know we do have pretty brutal winters i normally travel uh out of chicago uh, throughout the winter at least that's, one that's a wise wise choice there <laughs> i mean I, i'm like anywhere southern hemisphere is just you know up for grabs you could go literally anywhere you know you're probably going to spend less money just living you know in like i don't know thailand or whatever you know but um yeah so so that was worth it you know it was uh and initially i planned to just go for 10 days because you know i'm like okay i can kind of fit in something like a quick trip and just meet some people and see how things look but um after 10 days out there i just you know i felt like i hadn't really you know, moved enough to kind of get like a general picture. I also happen to be, because I grew up in South America, Spanish is my first language. So that was also extremely useful because like I said, I, I have met, uh, like we were just talking a minute ago, but I, uh, I have, I did actually meet a lot of people that were making content, like a lot of, a lot of people that were going there just with these sole exp- uh, um, goal to that, to, you know, film and create some content based on what's going on. But I feel like most of the times, because most uh, people that are doing these type of projects or that are into crypto don't have like a fluent Spanish um, uh, uh, lingo, <laughs> uh, a lot of times uh, some of these personal communications or when you speak to people, you ask the same questions everyone's asked before, and then people just tell you exactly the same thing. And it's kind of like a, you just kind of go in circles. So with on this one, uh, yeah, it just happened to be that it was very convenient in that sense. You know, I, I grew up in South America, so I can also, uh, from a like social standpoint, kind of relate to certain realities that you have living in a developing country that are very different to, for example, my life now in Chicago, right? Um, so, so I, I feel very. Um, in a sense, fortunate that I have, uh, you know, those two perspectives that I can use to compare it, go, go and come back. Um, so yeah, essentially, you know, I traveled, uh, throughout the country for about a month, uh, different cities and actually had a couple of interviews with different people that I, you know, some of them for true, <laughs> for truth list, like, uh, out of luck. And then some other people I met, um, you know, through interviews or through friends in common and whatnot. So I, I had a couple of interviews with a few lawyers. Uh, some of them were pro uh, Bukele, which is the current government administration, and some were against, uh, which I thought was very interesting as well, because you kind of want to have a, you know, you want to see both sides of the of the coin. Um, uh, so, yeah, and kind of get a general overview. Yeah. So are you making a documentary with all that content that you collected or what's what's going to happen with all that content? So for the time being, the content was more meant to be um, more than to use it itself. Um, it, these interviews were more to kind of gather uh, data and just kind of set uh, 
establish right like certain general knowledge uh situations of what's going on in the country and like what how do how do people actually feel down there and you know because it's very easy like for example you you can read uh international media now nowadays I, i think it's like al jazeera and stuff like that and it's very clear that the government the current government is is being looked at as kind of a authoritarian regime. Um, yeah, there's, um, you know, there's uh, definitely a lot of criticism uh, on on behalf of, you know, people rep- representing the government as they're taking a lot of liberties and bypassing the constitutional process uh, in order to uh, fortify their own, their own power and, and weaken their opposition which I think is generally the name of the game in politics for the most part. Um, but in this case, uh, because there's not a lot of media coming from the inside of the country, um, yeah, that's where it's a little complicated. In terms of what the objective with this, initially the idea was to uh, do some sort of like documentary, short format, like a short film slash uh, docu-reality where it's, uh, you know, kind of get into the lives of people that are you know whose realities have been modified or changed due to this uh this technological implementation um since then i've actually seen quite a lot of quite a few pieces just basically under that narrative and essentially something very similar to that you know so i think uh i'm basically trying to explore right now uh, more on the technological aspect more on the you know technology and and also like the geopolitics of it because like you know when we're talking about implementing a new form of currency when you're talking about money money by default is quite political i would say um it, it implies you know control and there's um you know if if someone is gaining power on one end someone is losing power from the other so it's it's very tricky and then again also we have to consider you know where el salvador comes from right like what what they're context is like as a country because i think that that's very that that really does show you uh, if we if we project our our culture right and then we just imagine a president taking over for example congress in the u.s and just uh you know deliberating you know and making his own deliberations and just kind of not really respecting other people's opinions that would be a, a big deal right but then when you're talking about a country where from the past four presidents, three have been uh, convicted. You know, they've passed through the trial, you know, a public a public trial and been convicted of like stealing and embezzling funds. And, you know, it's a slightly different um, reality. Right. And and the political vibe is a really interesting one that we want to touch on because um for instance, the El Salvadorian dollar is pegged to the U.S. dollar, so no El Salvadorian gets to vote on their monetary policy. Uh, they're pegged to the dollar, uh, the U.S. dollar, and and what the U.S. does. So, you know, one question that we had uh, for you is just was that talked about, um, and then just kind of like um, the general feeling on Bitcoin adoption by the people you talk to. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, re- regarding the the monetary policy. So essentially, uh, El Salvador runs right now with U.S. dollars. They they don't have a central bank that emits their own currency. However, they do have a, a currency. It's called El Colón, 
Um, and this is a currency that they used up until 2001. And the reason why they switched was um, El Salvador had been going through like a, a civil war. Um, it was basically the left party that was like guerrillas and, you know, like very, <laughs> like a, a, a very messy warfare style versus the government that was backed by the U.S. government at the time. So you could think like left and right, you know, to put it somehow. Um, so eventually uh, the left-leaning party turned into an actual party and they now they, they represent a sector of the population. Uh, what uh, In 2001, uh, the, they decided to pass a law that turned uh, their monetary policy into a bi-monetary um, um, a situation where they use their currency is still technically legal and it's still available if they wanted to, but it's not being used since 2001. And essentially everyone pays everything in dollars. Everything is valued in dollars, U.S. dollars. Now, in terms of because they're using the U.S. dollar, they can't really choose to print right or, or, or emit anything like that. So essentially they are tied to whatever the Federal Reserve does. And recently due to COVID measures and pandemic uh, relief and all this stuff, right? Uh, the U.S. basically printed, uh, I think it's like 40% of the total supply of U.S. dollars that have ever been in existence. Yeah, in, yeah, 39% of all the dollars in existence were printed in the last four years. <laughs> yeah, which is... Absolutely insane. But um, going back to El Salvador, in, in the U.S., all that money represents, uh, you know, some kind of stimulus for the economy. It represents uh, spending. It represents infrastructure that, you, that can be used to uh, stimulate the economy. Uh, but in El Salvador, that doesn't really get that way. It, the only thing that they get is the representation of inflation because they don't have, uh, they're not receiving an influx of of that or a percentage of that currency. Uh, the benefits of having the U.S. dollar as a as a local currency for a country like El Salvador is that it um, facilitates trade within other you know neighboring countries. And uh, it has also helped them to keep their inflation low since uh, their banks, their central banks, don't really have a lot of accountability as much as ours. <laughs> um, they, yeah, their currency was being uh, defaced at some point. So that's why they made the move. So essentially, since, since this uh, last year, since 2021, uh, in September that they passed this Bitcoin law, what the law um, kind of does is the law doesn't replace the U.S. dollar. And the, the law doesn't also, there are a couple of things that have been kind of criticized over because the law actually, there's a couple of, of points. And the law says that every business needs to accept uh, Bitcoin if someone wants to pay with Bitcoin. Right. So a lot of people saw that and immediately were, you know, kind of like, hey, but what if I don't want to take that? You know, what if I don't want to take the risk or the volatility? So um, I think one of the very important uh, key features of the implementation have to do with um, the Lightning Network technology. Right. So I, I don't know if you're familiar with what the Lightning Network is. Yeah. So that's a that's a payment system that ex that exists with Bitcoin to send payments across to other people. Right. Basically, yep. It's a layer two solution to um, make Bitcoin transactions 
essentially free and instant, right? So the the problem with Bitcoin as a as a blockchain, right, is that I think it has about seven transactions per minute. If I, I want, if I'm not mistaken, I think uh, that was no, no per per minute per second. <laughs> uh, either way, I mean, basically that's obviously not enough. And the reason why it's very slow is because you have this entire network that is validating um, every every transaction. Every movement has to be validated by the entire network, and that's very expensive. Uh, so what, what's happening with the Lightning Network is this a layer two, just as Chainlink or something like that, right? Where you uh, transfer liquidity to a certain channel, and then within that channel, you can make payments um, at no fee, basically, or extremely low fee. So you're talking about cents, um, you know, cents on a dollar or, or even less than that. So, um, and there are instant transactions as well. So what the, what the government has done is through this Chivo wallet that they created, they created a, a fund of $150 million to provide liquidity for transfer. So the way it works is essentially you download a digital wallet uh, have you heard of the company Strike by any chance? So this is a like Strike. No, so, I haven't. So they are a company, a U.S. company. I think they're also based off of Chicago, and they basically developed the technology that uh, El Salvador's wallet ended up uh, adopting. So what they do is essentially they provide liquidity. They they use the Lightning Network to make Bitcoin payments. Uh, internationally they they're like a cash app if you will but instead of using you know the traditional financial system um as paypal does or or square you know they use the lightning network to to make uh cash transactions final so um most of the times when you make say for example a, a credit card payment what's happening is there's a there's all these intermediaries right so for example say i want to go buy coffee um I have a card that is issued by a particular bank. So my bank is allowing um, a certain, I have a limit on my card that will allow me to, you know, spend to a certain Yeah, you have amount. to ask for permission to spend your own money. It's it's pretty ridiculous, Correct. right? Not only ask for permission, but you, uh, you, my bank needs to communicate with their bank and they need to process that transaction. And a lot of times that transaction will take about three days to be verified. Um, it'll they'll allow you to to swipe the card and to actually process the payment, but it won't actually clear until a couple of days later. And a lot of times there's companies that are doing the bridge right between one bank and the other. So that's where um, the Lightning Network really comes in handy because essentially the Lightning Network enables uh, a payment to a person to person transaction. It, it removes all the need for middlemen and intermediaries and you can make a, a cash final payment instant and at no cost partly so this removes the need for you know well there's a there's a lot of things going on in el salvador uh, you have to remember the el salvador has a 20 percent of their gdp comes from remittances so that is yeah. a significant amount right yeah like so there's 20%. a lot of payments that are going across and so yeah having the ability to not have to wait for all those things um, so I, I wanted to touch on this study that I just came across um, by the U.S. National Bureau of Economic Research. And the data um, on this study just came out recently shows that Bitcoin adoption in El Salvador is not really going that well. 
Um, and the abstract says that despite the government's big push, a large fraction of the people, um, you know, have downloaded the Chiva wallet, but usage for everyday transactions is still pretty low. And it's concentrated among the people that are already banked, educated, young male population. And um, only 20% of the respondents in El Salvador continue using the Chiva wallet after they downloaded it and spending the initial $30 sign up bonus. And most downloads occurred last September when it was first announced. And pretty much no one has installed uh, the Chivo app on their phone in 2022, according to the study. So what is your experience? Does that match up with like what you saw on the ground there? I would say so, yeah. Uh, for the most part, uh, what's happened um, was that this, this whole thing was announced, I think, like in July. And then it was launched in September. <laughs> um, and it was effective, made effective. So there wasn't a lot of education put out to the general public about what it was uh, when the wallet was launched. As you said, you know, there was that incentive, I think it was $30 that the government was giving out in Bitcoin for uh, Salvadorians. But in order to retreat, in order to claim those $30, you had to verify your account. So you had to take a, a photo of your government issued ID and then take a photo of your face, right? Like a selfie. To KYC. Yeah. KYC exactly. So essentially, you know, they're basically just running another bank. They're they're running our cent a central bank that is, runs on Bitcoin, <laughs> but it's not a decentralized system necessarily. Now, what they are tapping into is a decentralized system, is a, a decentralized monetary system, right? So there is this whole new infrastructure of Bitcoin that is being kind of developed worldwide, and it's not just um el salvador there's many countries that are mining uh bitcoin and you know some of these countries are selling it some of these countries are storing it um it's a, it's a larger conversation but going back to what you were saying you know the implementation itself it, it seems to me uh i even heard from people from some locals that they were telling me the you know within the next week or the two next weeks after the the wallet was launched there was like lines at certain supermarkets where people were just you know going to spend the $30 in groceries or you know just normal stuff like spend basically it before it like, the market crashes <laughs> just get $30 now what i did want to point out $30 is um it's a decent amount of money for the average el salvadoran right i saw that it's about um 0.7% of someone's annual income based on per capita income of an of a El Salvadoran citizen. So it's almost like 1% of like your annual take home pay. So that's a significant amount of money. It is. It is. Absolutely. Yeah. The, definitely $30 uh, are not, are not worth the same as $30 are worth in the U S no doubt. Um, but uh, what I did want to point out that this is something that I see a lot of times is missed by, uh, you know, reporting on, you know, the implementation of Bitcoin. But basically what, what the wallet allows you to do is it makes Bitcoin payment transactions, right? So you can make payments, but as much as you can make payments uh, to send or receive Bitcoin, you can also send and receive U.S. dollars. Um, so the wallet will enable, for example, there's two, uh, you have two balances. So you have a Bitcoin balance and then you have a dollar, US dollar balance. And the US dollar balance can be used uh, with basically no fees. You can withdraw, you can go to ATMs. They've implemented over 200 ATMs uh, for this Chivo wallet um, where you can go and through your phone, you can just enter, you know, scan your QR code and withdraw money. 
basically like a cash machine. So you can send and receive U.S. dollars as much as Bitcoin. So, for example, uh, what what does that mean, right? So, for example, if you're a business and you are charging for a product, say ten dollars for a particular product, someone goes and says, "Hey, I want to pay with Bitcoin." Uh, according to the Bitcoin law that they've implemented, you have to take that. But if you don't want to, as a business, you don't have to take Bitcoin. You can take, uh, you can receive dollars. So they pay you in Bitcoin, and you just receive U.S. dollars. So your balance in Bitcoin, whatever you've received in Bitcoin, will fluctuate according to the market value. But whatever you've received in U.S. dollars won't fluctuate. So say again that product that is worth ten dollars. They want to pay in Bitcoin, but I want to receive U.S. dollars because I don't want to for I don't want to be you know dealing exposed with that to the volatility. Yeah, so Correct. so pretty much what you're saying is you know there's there's a function in that wallet that automatically um, sells that Bitcoin into dollars and then they receive it in dollars and you can go vice versa. So you can do either one. That's pretty cool. I mean, do, so, do people and- use that? How how does that work? Yeah, correct. Uh, basically, I would say the majority of people using the Chivo wallet are using that and they are all receiving U.S. dollars. Uh, you have to remember, for example, in, in El Salvador, it's pretty common. I wouldn't say uh, the minimum salary, as far as I understand, is about $300, $330. That was the last that I, I knew. Uh, however, there are a, a lot of people that are making less money than that. Some people work, you know, a whole 10, 12 hour day as a server or, uh, you know, at a restaurant or something like that for $10 a day. This is actually a pretty standard fee. So um, that person that is making $10 a day doesn't want to uh, receive, you know, less depending on the market, right? If they receive $10, but that $10 tomorrow is worth 8 then there's a chance they might not eat, right? Or there's a chance they might not be able to afford transportation to their work the next day. So there's all these these things. So most people that are receiving or uh, doing transactions through this wallet are using U.S. dollars, I would say. So it's a, in a form, it's just digitizing their use of money. Um, and, and did yeah. you find that people were liking this Chivo wallet or was it majority like were people still wanting to hold regular cash because that was one thing that we read too is that a lot of people are still preferring regular cash i would say that yeah a lot of people are using it's just they're used to it right people will do what they're used to and in general people are used to having cash um so most payments you know most transactions are being done in cash especially in certain cities especially for example in the capital city where you don't really have um like you can't really walk from one place to another most of the times most people that go you would go to like a shopping center or you would go to um everything you'd normally move around in a vehicle so in those type of circumstances most people are paying with cash or even cards right normal regular credit cards or because it's uh they've already they have an established uh, system that works um, in the places that you see that you see this uh, implementation actually working is in certain smaller towns where, for example, street vendors have been able to implement uh, through their phone. So essentially, anyone with a smartphone all of ha- all of a sudden has a a wallet, right? Uh, has a bank account really because through your phone you can send money, you can receive money. You don't have to register uh, as a business. You don't have to Right. You basically can um, send, receive, uh, make payments, uh, pay bills all through your phone. 
Yeah, that's so, and that's significant because um, I was looking at the data, and seventy percent of El Salvadorians were unbanked um, prior right. to this rollout. So that's 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 over two thirds of the population. That's really significant. Absolutely. But you Absolutely. do need a smartphone with an internet connection, right? So did you see, um, has has that been a, a hindrance for some people um, getting into this um, new payment system? So it, definitely there is a, a portion of the population that is, th that doesn't even, you know, they don't even read and write, right? So there is a small percentage, say like a five to 10% or something like that, where pe of people that don't even know how to use a smartphone, you know, so that wouldn't even be. However, the the Chiba wallet has been, it was developed according to the government official sources. I don't know how well this works, but it was uh, developed so that you don't need an internet connection. You don't need data on your phone to actually be able to use it. So they have a like a uh, uh, an agreement with uh, phone carriers so that the wallet works regardless of whether you have data on your phone or you don't. And a lot of people, for example, don't have data. So in that sense, it's been, it hasn't been a, a huge, you know, uh, block. But then again, you know, um, you, what I thought was pretty interesting was, for example, seeing street vendors selling, you know, gum, selling single cigarettes or selling Coca-Cola, for example, uh, with a QR code, right? So they, you know, they're carrying their stuff and they will take cash if you want to pay it with a dollar or two dollars or whatnot, they'll take cash. But if you want to pay with your phone, you just scan their QR code, enter the amount for the product, send it. They'll receive it immediately, you know, and that's basically how a lot of people are doing it. And, you know, that is, that's pretty new. I mean, that's not something you see. That's not something you see everywhere. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's a really interesting um, use case. I can see. I mean, I mean, um, it reminds me of kind of like how people take tips in in Venmo now. Here, like, like if you go to a city and there's like even like um, street performers, you know, will even have like their QR code of their Venmo out. You know, so if they're playing the guitar or whatever, and you walk by, you can they'll still have their hat out for cash, but you can also scan their Venmo and send them stuff. I mean, is um, is uh, remittances um significantly changed though because i i said i looked at this um survey and it said the chivo wallet has very little evidence it's being used to pay for taxes and remittances at a significant scale um the El salvador central bank data shows only 1.6 percent of remittances were sent through digital wallets in 2022 so far okay so i was not familiar with that um with that number but as far as i understand remittances are a huge one of the biggest reasons it, that the government decided to implement this change. The reason for it is it's estimated about $400 million are spent in transaction fees, in remittance transaction fees. And the reason for this is a lot of times, like, like you said, you know, 70% of the population doesn't have access to bank accounts. So this means, for example, Venmo or Cash App or all these services, they expect you to have a bank account, right? You, there, there's a checking account at a bank and this, uh, integration this technological integration connects to the bank right and so that's where you receive your money or you make the payments uh through this implementation there is no need for a bank account so basically all that 70 percent of the population that can uh, that doesn't have access to financial services or or anything like that they can access to, uh, to receive payments without having to use for example one of the main 
ways, again, because of the fact that they don't have banks, one of the main ways to send money was through uh, money uh, operators, for example, Western Union or DHL. And most of these companies have uh, quite significant fees and the fees go up as uh, the, the smaller the amount that you're trying to send, right? That's where the fees really get hefty. Because if you're sending a million dollars, right? They're not going to charge you a 5% fee out of a million dollars. <laughs> They're not going to charge you probably not even a 3%. But if you're sending $10, right? Ch chances are those fees are going to be about 50% of the transaction. It could be easily $5 to send that. And um, uh, I think it's estimated it's 2.5 million Salvadorians live in the US. This is why 20% of their GDP comes from remittances directly. So just the fact that, you know, say, according to the number, $400 million being spent uh, in, in transaction fees, those are $400 million that would go directly, in theory, right, would go directly to the pockets of Salvadorians that are receiving the money, because they are ultimately the ones that are paying those fees. Um, so that on its own should be significant. Now, I'm not exactly aware, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to, according to those numbers, it seems like, you know, it hasn't really taken off. But it seems to me like if you can send money and, you know, for example, Western Union will charge you about $20 to send $150, $200 to El Salvador. And the reason they charge you that is not because they're greedy, you know, a greedy corporation. It's just simply they have overhead that they need to cover. They have to pay for rent, security, employees, systems, right? Transportation. There's all these costs that are associated to actually transferring and, and securing cash finality to from one place to another versus- Not to mention this. like the, the banking fees and transaction fees that they also are, because of they're using all those legacy financial system rails that, that they have to incur. I'm sure there's some all sorts of fees and red tape on the back end that mm -hmm. you're not, we're not talking about. Absolutely. So, for example, that 70% that is unbanked, a part of that has to do with, uh, you know, some people not having uh, proper like credit history or records or, but some of it is directly related to them not making enough money, right? So, uh, there's a certain cost associated to maintaining a checking account. There's like an insurance fee that they have to pay over there. There are also, all of their banks are very completely closed systems. So you know how here in the U.S., for example, we have services like Zelle or Venmo where we can send from one bank to another, and it's basically unnoticeable. So you could have Chase and I could have Bank of America, and we could send money to each other very easily with basically no fees um, because there's these agreements that they built <laughs> uh, so that all these systems are connected in a sense. They're all closed systems, but they all work together. However, in El Salvador, if you are if you have an account with one of the banks and you want to send money to another <laughs> a bank, you basically have to write a check, and that check needs to be cleared. You know, which will take like two days, and it has to be verified by both parties and whoever is in the middle, or you can go to the bank physically and withdraw the cash and walk to the other bank and deposit it. That's basically the only ways to transfer money from one bank to another. And this is their financial system. This is how people, you know, do things every day. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah, so, that's, 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 a, that's a struggle. That's definitely not very convenient at all. Not even uh, think of this also. People, for example, that get paid a, sa a monthly salary that get paid in a check. They have to take a day off out of their work 
to take a bus because most people don't have their own car or their own, you know, transportation. So they would have to take public transport, say on their day off, take a bus an hour to the city, get to the city, you know, go to the bank, deposit your check, wait until it clears so that you can actually do stuff and, you know, withdraw, pay, pay people, what, what not, um, versus through the digital form, they can get paid on the spot. You know, they could even get paid daily, you know, because there's no there's no fees for transferring money. So it basically means that you could send, you know, a daily payment. You could send, you know, there you're basically you send a hundred dollars, they receive a hundred dollars. You send a thousand dollars, they receive receive a thousand dollars. So that that is automatically that's pretty big. That yeah, is. that's that, that's that's really big. So yeah, I wanted to touch on that because I was interested in how businesses are implementing this technology so people are using it for payroll essentially so you could um pay all your employees using the, the chivo wallet um it says though among um you know a lot among the, the, the survey here says among companies 20 percent reported accepting bitcoin as a form of payment and most of them were, were the bigger companies so what, what what were your thoughts on that on businesses and, and how they're adopting it so I think um, for the time being, as as far as I, what I was, you know, exposed to, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of incentive from, you know, the private sector to adopt this new technology because the way they see it. So initially, when when the Bitcoin law passed, I think there was even some protests that were going on, you know, um, like against Bitcoin because they they were saying that, you know, it was causing it was like. Um, a very risky situation, right? That nobody had really approved. It wasn't like a dem- democratic, uh, didn't go through its democratic process and whatnot. Um, but I think that ultimately once, you know, for example, every every credit card payment that you have, they all have fees associated. Um, every business that takes credit cards, for example, that, you know, American Express or uh, Visa, MasterCard, uh, they do charge. I think it's up to three percent. It's two point something or three percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like two two point five to three percent depends on the merchant process uh, merchant that you're using. Exactly. So essentially, you have an alternative technology that enables the exact same payment, but instead of paying that fee, you pay no fee, right? Um, now the the there is that privacy concern somewhat because uh there is no way that you can receive money and just say like oh no i didn't receive that money right because essentially the government has kind of access to all the transactions and to to the um so in terms of taxes in terms of i don't know there's a few things that are a little more you know on the nose to put it somehow that might be a concern some people have but in terms of businesses using it, um, to to me, it just seemed like they're just not aware of what's going on. They're just not aware that, for example, you can send and receive U.S. dollars in a lot of cases. Everyone talks about the volatility of Bitcoin, but when you know the government, that's the reason why they created this 150 million dollar fund was to provide that liquidity between you know businesses. So essentially, what's happening under the hood is you are sending, say, I want to pay you with Bitcoin. Uh, you're running a business. You don't want to receive Bitcoin. So the government is basically buying your Bitcoin and giving you US dollars to you as a business. Yeah, they're running a giant liquidity pool, essentially. That's exactly it. That's exactly what they're doing. So they kind of came to the conclusion we we have the liquidity to to actually, you know, put that so we don't need Binance to come in or 
you know, Coinbase or whatnot, right? So they are basically longing Bitcoin, <laughs> if you will, and they're just buying it and accumulating and, you know, putting it on their, uh, in some sort of like a reserve that they're building. And there's a, a, you know, clear expectation because they're building, they're setting up these new bonds uh, for infrastructure and development and all this stuff. And they're expecting it to, you know, appreciate in value. So, yes. Yeah. And I want to uh, touch on that volatility aspect. Um, do you think if they were implementing another option like a stable coin, there would be, you know, more acceptance or adoption? Because, you know, for instance, uh, we hear a lot of stories of Argentina and Chile using a lot of crypto for everyday transactions and it, and it being more well received down there. Mm. So I think uh, Argentina has a, a like a very different situation in a sense because they are undergoing right now the process of hyperinflation. They're maybe a little more similar to an example as like Venezuela than than El Salvador. El Salvador uh, since 2001, like we said, they haven't had monetary policy, so they haven't been able to issue money. So their inflation has not been something. Uh, crazy, you know. They've basically been able to to kind of um, function, you know, normally. Um, but in terms of what you were saying, you know, like it, would a stable coin make it uh, more accessible or more attractive for people? I think, in a sense, they kind of have done that because the fact is, the since they've been providing this all this liquidity. People are transacting through this. Uh, they're transacting via the Bitcoin Lightning Network, but they're not even noticing a lot of times. Most of the times, these transactions that, that are being made are being made from U.S. dollars to U.S. dollars, right? So, if for example, through this Chiba wallet, I don't only, I can't. It's not that I can only make payments in Bitcoin. I can send U.S. dollars, and you would receive U.S. dollars as well. Yeah, because you have two accounts, right? So you have your Bitcoin balance and you have your dollar balance, and you can mm -hmm. flow between those, and you can send those to businesses or, or, or whoever to make payments and transfer remittances either way. But you're saying most people just use the dollar feature because they just find that that's more convenient? Correct. I, what I saw, you know, in a couple of, and this is anecdotal because, uh, you know, it was just a couple of people that I met, but what the way they were thinking about it was the Bitcoin uh, balance is sort of a savings account type of thing. It's the money that you won't need immediately, the what you don't want to spend in the short term. So you have your US dollar balance, which is your money that you would be using, what you use to pay your bills with, what you use to you know um, transact and purchase things. And then your Bitcoin balance is kind of like a long-term savings account. And then again, you know, we're talking about, you know, the the um what is it like the um way like the acquisitive power i don't know if that's even a word but like the you know the amount of money that you have to spend is significantly lower for a salvadorian than it is for a american right for a u.s citizen or for anyone in a developed country so they're not spending you know they're not saving a hundred dollars a month most people aren't at least right and most people are maybe saving ten dollars a month but that over time can lead into something and they've never had that chance. They've never had a possibility yeah. of actually having a savings account. That's a really interesting point because um, I was talking with some people uh, recently that, you know, if you have an appreciating asset like Bitcoin, you know, you don't really want to spend that and you want to actually like hold, hold that, hodl it, right? Because it's going to go up and 
rather than in and spend the money that's that's the softer money which would be the dollars which is inflating um and and if you actually look at history and look at economic history in any in any um case where there's several kinds of money like a softer money a money that has a easier supply that one is what people transact with and everyone just holds on to and, and saves the harder currency and i mean like gold is an, is another example like no one goes around like with gold bars like spending things anymore because gold's too valuable to do that with and it's a harder currency it has a lower stock to flow ratio there's less gold entering the market than dollars um so yeah i think that that kind of checks out that people people get that and they're like okay well bitcoin is my that's my investment in my savings account but i think that's really fascinating too that um for a lot of people it's the first time they can really invest and and have that um you know kind of access to a savings account um with the chivo wallet i, I read that um so people that live outside of El Salvador, if they're El Salvadoran, can still download the Chivo wallet and transact with the Chivo wallet. Is that true? So like for uh, remittances? Yes, correct. Yeah. Um, also, the, the other thing with the Chivo wallet is because it's running on a Lightning Network um, protocol, that means that there's other wallets that you can use to transact with the, you know, they, they basically interoperate. With a Chivo wallet, so for example, you could use the Moon wallet. Uh, you can use, um, the, I think, the wallet of Satoshi. There's a couple of wallets that basically are Bitcoin, uh, Lightning Network enabled wallets, where you can, you know, send and transact freely. So that also is, uh, you know, from the Chivo wallet, you could send your Bitcoin anywhere else, or you could even send U.S. dollars to other to other uh, wallets. So yes, for example, in terms of remittances, like you could easily do that. You don't have to only use Chivo Wallet. And in fact, a lot of people have done that. So a lot of people, the Chivo Wallet has been like a sort of introductory, um, you know, wallet where they've signed up. And but it's not the only way that they can utilize that. So for example, you could have a separate wallet that does Bitcoin payments and uses Lightning Network technology, and I could pay for services with. Uh, with two people that are using the Chivo wallet. So, so yeah. I see. Is that so? As um, we touched on before about the privacy concerns, because essentially the government can see every payment that goes through, um, is, is going to a wallet like the Moon wallet, is that a way to circumvent the privacy concerns and, and kind of get outside of the, the surveillance of the government? It, it could be, absolutely. I mean, if you're transacting with Chivo wallets, uh, there's you know, pretty obviously, right? There's a an address um, associated to those transactions. So then, you know, I guess it, they could go through the trouble of like, you know, looking who, you know, who made them, uh, who, where did that money come from? And then, you know, kind of following the, the history. But um, as far as I understand, yeah, it's, it's not the only way. You could also run, for example, like a Tor uh, browser, and you could also do your own transactions from a private um, wallet, and you could openly transact with them. So there are uh, ways of doing that. It's just not, not simple, right? It's not easy. It's not something that any Salvadorian or even any normal person would would get to right that there's like a <laughs> from the moment you hear what what bitcoin is and like how it works and what it represents or what it means till you know like getting to the point of like you managing your own funds and understanding what private keys and public keys are and you know it's it's a bit of a a walk you know that you have to walk yeah it's i would say it's it's more like a climb <laughs> mm -hmm. that you have to mm -hmm. 
mountain. <laughs> but um, I think you mentioned another thing that's really important to talk about is this idea of custody and private keys. And that, um, so the, the, the Salvadorans are not given their private keys, right? To further Bitcoin. This is, uh, it's, it's a custodial wallet, right? Correct. It, that's exactly that's exactly um, it, what it is. Uh, the it is a custodial wallet that they've implemented. Um, yeah, yeah. Basically, uh, the the uh, people sign up using their phone number, um, and you know, obviously, verifying their account. Not once it's verified, the KYC goes into effect, and that account belongs to that one person. Um, and yeah, basically, uh, they don't really they don't really have the the, the private or the public right access. Um, they, uh, in a sense, you know, uh, one of these wallets could be, in theory, you know, it could be frozen, it could be um, manipulated, right? Like the government can technically freeze certain accounts and whatnot. But um, just because they can do that to your existing account doesn't mean that you can't exit. Right. So anyone that holds a Chivo wallet and has balance in it, they can always send their funds to any other wallet or, you know, or even cash it out. Technically, like they could go to a Chivo wallet, uh, to a Chivo ATM and just withdraw cash, you know. And so in that sense, yeah, I would say it's not the most I, I'm not super concerned. I mean, I, I do personally because, you know, I think like ideologically, Bitcoin in a sense stands for decentralization right <laughs> and decentralization kind of means that there are no centralized parties that can emit these type of decisions um and you know in this case because they're implementing it for an entire country i think that there are some regulations that need to be put in place because you have to consider there will be um bad faith actors you know there will be people that are you know trying to run scams or maybe even people that are um that are doing illicit uh, transactions, you know, selling uh, or trying to launder money or whatnot. So the government does need to have like some kind of oversight. And they've actually put, um, they've created an entire company, right? As a Chivo wallet is a private company that they've set up uh, where, you know, they have call centers involved. So for example, if you have any issues or even signing up, um, a lot of people have problems you know uh so this was something also that did happen uh, i just thought i'd mention it but like at the time they implemented it um a lot of people did come back and say uh, say that they had issues with signing up because uh there were a, a bunch of uh like identities theft situations where essentially scammers you know because they had information they had probably you know the IDs or something like that from a leak or whatnot. They basically signed up to to in order to to get the thirty dollars. You know, so a lot of people when they were trying to sign up for the Chivo wallet, they they were like, "You've already been verified," and they're like, "No, I didn't." But you know, so that happened. You know, that actually was one of the things that occurred. You know, because obviously thirty dollars is an incentive for someone. You know, to to go at it. Um, and in those cases, as far as I understand, uh, the, the person that was trying to sign up, they could call the call center and explain their situation, verify their identity, and then, you know, actually retrieve the money. So, you know, it's not quite, you know, we're not talking about Bitcoin transactions. When we talk about the El Salvador implementing Bitcoin as legal tender, we're not talking about Bitcoin as the blockchain, right? And these 
non-reversible transactions. We're talking about Lightning Network where it is a non-reversible cash transaction when you make a payment from one place to another, but because it's a it's a layer two <laughs> network, um, they do have a certain control over this Chivo, Chivo wallet. That's really interesting. And um, you weren't there during the time that Russia invaded Ukraine, right? You'd already left? Um, actually, I was there like right at the time. Yeah, actually. Because I, I was going to ask if that had any effect on the conversation. You know, Russia got swifted. They, uh, Russian citizens were, you know, converting rubles into Bitcoin so that they could store their wealth. And just wondering if anyone was talking about that as a narrative. Mm, you know, from the people that I met, um, not much because I feel like most of the people, you know, that I was kind of surrounded by at the time, uh, were much more concerned, like not very participating in the international, you know, politics and, you know, what's going on in the world. I think a lot of people, we have to understand, you know, in, in these developing countries, a lot of people that are making, you know, enough money to subsist, right. There's no really, there's not a lot of, of opportunity for saving or for investment or for things like this. So these are foreign concepts still for a lot of people. And, uh, you know, like the, to me, you know, like as much as probably you, um, that just screams, right. That's just very, um, you know, very significant, you know, the fact that, um, you know, there are like certain political parties that can just make determinations and just decide to cut people off or uh, entire sectors of the population. That's pretty wild. But yeah, it's a really interesting conversation too, because Bitcoin, like you said, it has the decentralized principles of kind of autonomy, but then there's a little bit more of an authoritarian leaning government with Bukalele and, and everything like, and, and that's like a kind of a weird mix like melting pot of Bitcoin values and authoritarian government. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I almost feel like the implementation of, of kind of the payment system that El Salvador has done with Bitcoin is they've almost kind of made a central bank digital currency um, because it's, it's, it's completely centralized, but they just have like these Bitcoin, they're almost using Bitcoin as a, as an asset to back the C, a CBDC that is, that is a digital dollar, you know, in an interesting mm -hmm. way. Sort of. I mean, there is uh, some of that, but consider this. They could, uh, the government of El Salvador could have easily just created their CBDC, right? They could have made their their national currency uh, a CBDC and just issue and then control their monetary policy and control, you know, their emittance and the cost of transactions and, and do all these, you know, fancy new things that they could have done. They chose to go with uh, decentralized um, money network that they can't control, right? So already, I think like the the intention behind that is they're trying to kind of tapping, they're trying to tap in into this into this new uh, economic you know system that is developing, right? That is that is not really controlled. The the reason why this is one of the main, I think, one of the very important keys. But the reason why Bitcoin is appreciating in value over time is because it has delineated monetary policy where you know the emission of bitcoin is gonna always kind of be the same this can be it's open source so it can be inspected by anyone all parties involved are know what's going on and they all have an understanding right yeah from a corrupt corruption standpoint it it really um kind of holds more people accountable um 
what let's say kind of take a step forward. Um, do you have what what are your predictions? You know, after visiting, like what do you, what does the future kind of look like in your eyes for for Bitcoin and adoption in El Salvador? Um, to be to be completely honest, it, it is it does seem a bit it, it is a gamble, right? Like this is a big move that they're making. Um, but there are risks, um, especially based on the on the price volatility. I think that the price volatility is really going to determine, you know, uh, how people feel about it. Because we have to remember, you know, the the funds that are being used to purchase all this Bitcoin that the government is buying, and you know, they're they're deciding to to double down on. That's all public funds, right? This is all public money. Right. And that always normally when you when a government has spending that is public spending, they have to follow certain levels of accountability. And in this case, they're just kind of it seems to me like they're just kind of. You know, like yellowing a little bit, you know, and, uh, you know, one of the concerns is that by 2023, El Salvador has a, a loan of $800 million that they have to, you know, uh, repay. And that loan, I think it's with uh, the IMF. Yeah, the International Doesn't... Monetary Fund. Correct. And they don't they don't accept Bitcoin. <laughs> so. <laughs> You know, chances are what's going to happen is if Bitcoin is not, you know, worth more than what they paid for, they're going to have to liquidate at, you know, a low, at a lower price, resulting in actual losses for, for their, you know, total balance. So, you know, that, you know, I guess we'll, we'll just have to see and see how it plays out. That That is due on January of 2023. So they have some months left. <laughs> Yeah, so let's hope for that that bull market run to continue. So, um, but I think it's really interesting that the IMF has been very critical of um, the El Salvadoran government and and what they've been doing with Bitcoin, and they've been very public about criticizing them. And uh, I mean, do you think? I mean, I think of course they have a vested interest in 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 that because they have you know a, a debt that's due to them soon. But I also do think you know is there you know, the IMF ha- has this plays this big role in a lot of these developing countries. And they, 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 they lot, that's a lot of people have, a, you know, um, qualms with the IMF and what they do, because they kind of hold these developing countries hostage with, with this, you know, this essentially world bank and, um, you know, these decentralized networks like Bitcoin and Ethereum, you know, they're, ch- they're, they're, gi- they're giving these countries another way to organize their finances. That's outside the realm of the IMF. And, and so I'm wondering if, you know, the IMF is maybe acting so stiff on El Salvador because they don't want other countries to to follow suit and lose their grip and, and their and their relevancy. What do you think about that? Absolutely. I mean, I think you, in my opinion, you hit it like right in the head because that's exactly what it is. You know, uh, the IMF basically has a control of like the geopolitics and developing in the developing world in general. And when they issue out these loans, there were, in fact, before El Salvador um, officially declared the Bitcoin law uh, effective, they uh, were uh, negotiating a $1.3 billion loan with the International Monetary Fund. Um, and as far as I understand, they did not receive it because of their move uh, to Bitcoin, right? Uh, but that's exactly what uh, the government of El Salvador is doing. And that's exactly what a lot of countries in the world right now, especially dollarized countries, especially countries that don't have, uh, you know, uh, really power to control their monetary policy because they're depending on a foreign currency. 
which they can't control and which is devaluating as we speak, right? Um, just based on the issuance, right? So this is providing kind of like an alternative. It's a, it's a, it's a monetary network that can't be controlled by a, by a group or by a bank. Um, it's just controlled by the open market. Um, yeah, the price volatility is a real thing. And the price volatility a lot of times comes from the fact that you have like a, a very um, uh, unflexible right, uh, supply, right? So in most um, assets, if you, if you have a high demand, all of a sudden the supply expands. If you have low demand, the supply contracts. And this is how kind of these... these yeah, elasticity, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. but it's it, the supply is inelastic. It doesn't really respond to the demand. So correct. Yeah. Um, so I liked what you said about you know these other dollarized countries countries abandoning um, you know their their peg to the dollar with and and moving to you know looking at these other options. And I wanted to touch on that and pull on that a little bit more um, because I do agree with you that I think that what's happening in El Salvador is like a like a monetary experiment. And you have a lot of other countries that are that are looking on and they're studying what's happening and they want to see how it's going and what they can learn from this. And I th- I think, you know, like you said, there's, there's kind of, you know, a lot of these countries, they don't have another option besides, you know, they can do the, the Chinese yuan option and try to like go towards that way or they can stay on the dollar. But what crypto is giving these other countries is, an, is a third way, right? It's another way to, to, to have their economies independent of what's happening in the U.S. or what's happening in Russia or China. Absolutely. I I think so, too. Yeah. No, I think uh, that's exactly true. You know, and um, and I've, you know, heard a lot of people say, you know, like, but, you know, if the if the underlying asset doesn't have inherent value, how can you guarantee, right, <laughs> that the whole thing is going to keep up? But I think like one very simple rebuttal to that is just, uh, for example, I, I know that, you know, proof of work right now is receiving a lot of uh, attention, you know, and a lot of criticism from all over the world. There's um, basically in Europe there, you know, and in, in the U.S. we're speaking of how to regulate and if we do like proof of work or we don't or whatnot. But from a technical standpoint, I think that, just from the place of, you know, in order to run this algorithm uh, that validates consensus, in or- you need a significant amount of electricity. And that cost of that electricity is already like a base price, right? That's already a base cost where you stand from, you know? So you can't go lower than that because that would defeat the purpose, right? So you already have a starting point. Um, I, I definitely think that like, the whole the whole world is starting to uh, and i think that there's been players doing this for already several years but the whole world is starting to notice that there are that there is this alternative that there is this uh like third way out in a sense it's not even a way out but it's just a a way in which countries can transact within each other without the need of of going through this intermediary which is you know the u.s government or the imf or the world bank Right where they need to bypass, like for example, countries that are selling, for example, oil, Saudi Arabia and stuff like that. You know, they they don't need to necessarily turn you know into U.S. dollars and then you know um, commerce between each other. Like all of a sudden, there's this native currency, like native from the internet, that just does its thing, that holds a a minimum amount of value, and the volatility is kind of tied to the demand 
and to the issuing issuance rate. So all of a sudden it does present like very attractive uh, possibilities for, I think, a lot of players in the world, whether it's like energy, um, yeah, en- energy producers or, or even, you know, like goods and services and, and, and all these things. Now, it, you know, it's very hard to use as money something that is constantly changing, right? It's very hard to evaluate your... Uh, so I don't think... I don't see that, for example, El Salvador... Uh, removing the U.S. dollar anytime soon, you know, as a currency. I don't think that that's anywhere near because I don't think that that's in their interest either. I think what they're really looking for is to have this external, you know, like digital asset as a as a, a sort of a way of safeguarding if the inflation keeps um, going rampant as it is currently, right? And we keep hearing, I, I don't know, I see every day, I see, I read news articles of how the inflation is under control and how we're going to keep it under control. And like, there's all these plans and all these, you know, it's very, yeah, it's very um, um, optimistic. <laughs> but in the case that it doesn't, you know, in the case that this actually doesn't revert into, you know, um, windy, you know, like happy, happy place, rosy and happy place, uh, they do have like sort of an alternative. There is something that they can be like, hey, you know what, actually, we're going to, you know, fall back to this. So I, I think it's just we're going to have to see, you know, but I I personally think it's very, very interesting. I think uh, that, you know, ultimately no change is good for everyone, right? Like nothing that is um, new that kind of breaks an old system will benefit everyone and not everyone will be happy. So for example, the entire financial sector of El Salvador, the, you know, the banks, um, they're basically, how can you compete with a service that transfers value from one place to another for free, right? It's a, it's technology. Instantaneous. (laughs) Yeah. It, It just, you you can't compete. You know there is nothing. I mean, obviously they can they they can compete in services. They can offer services that maybe the technology itself can't do on its own. But that service is going to come with a cost, right? So that's really, you know, they're obviously going to be focusing on a on a sector of the population. And I think that this this implementation basically allows the whole rest, everyone else that is unbanked that doesn't have access to these services that. That can't even afford, even if they did have access, if they can't even afford to pay for these services, um, all of this, all of a sudden they have an alternative and they can actually, you know, participate, participate in the economy, mm-hmm. you know, um, have savings. Um, yeah. The un the unbanked portion is something that you know we try to bring up because um, you know access to financial tools and um, you know the equity that comes along with that, and uh, I think most people can. Can agree that it's easier to get a smartphone than get approved for a bank account, uh, especially when there's minimum thresholds and insurance and you know different parameters. So, especially if you really... have to take a bus an hour to get to a bank, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, uh, stepping out of El Salvador, um, are you familiar with any other countries that are looking at this model right now? Personally, not too much. I've, I've been hearing news about um, Panama, apparently, like looking into alternatives just similar to, to what they're doing, but it seems like they're going to go a, a more conservative route. Um, Panama is another dollarized country where they use the dollar, at, like the US dollar, as, as their local currency. So, um, but it, what it seems is like Panama right now is kind of just taking. Um, a different approach. They're not trying to implement this for the entire population, but they're trying to create uh, financial sectors where they where they can open up for 
for venture capital, for foreign investment, for people that are trying to develop uh, new companies. And, you know, basically all the people that are in that space, that you're giving them an outlet or somewhere they, they can put their money in, you know. So I I think uh, definitely, you know, it's going to be interesting. Um, it seems like Portugal also has like very friendly laws or regulation in terms of like crypto. I, I hear there's a lot of mm-hmm. crypto entrepreneurs um, moving out there. Um, yeah. Um, as far as the other, what other dollarized countries um, are, are you familiar with that are kind of ripe for this sort of disruption or this sort of change? Maybe not exactly what's happening in Salvador, but maybe, you know, they're, they're probably look, uh, looking at what's happening and, and scratching their heads and, lo- and looking at like, maybe what their options are. Um, as far as I understand, uh, Paraguay was one of them. Uh, Paraguay was one of the countries that have been kind of uh, similar history where they've been, you know, plagued by corruption and, you know, very uh, poor, uh, what is it, public funds, uh, public uh, management uh, of funds. Um, so, uh, yeah, they're they're uh, looking into these as options. Um I think there's other countries in Central America as well. Um, but then again, you know, I I'm, I wouldn't be able to tell you specifically, you know, uh, which which, you know, like where in what stage, what what part of the of the process they're at. But there's many countries in South America. For example, Ecuador I know is a dollarized country. Panama, um, Vietnam is <laughs> uh, is a dollarized. Like you use U.S. dollars and you know in Asia, right? Like there's several countries in the world where they mismanage their own like monetary funds, and their central banks are not you know able to to kind of um, you know do a, a proper job in maintaining their their liquidity and maintaining also their uh, issuance rate and whatnot so they've devalued their currency so all of a sudden you know jumping into something like this is very attractive because um it basically sets it's like a different standard it just creates a new standard where you know where you can't really cheat there is a certain level of transparency that that is implicit by having a you know banking with a what is it like a an open monetary network that is public <laughs> yeah yeah exactly so um i want to wrap up here but i want before we do um i just wanted to ask is there anything else uh, any big takeaways or anything else that's important to you that you want to share about your experience in el salvador with bitcoin or anything else in general mm, so um, I mean, there are a, a couple, I'd say, but um, one of the very interesting things uh, that I thought, you know, and again, you know, I, I'm not uh, trying to, I'm not trying to blindly support, you know, any type of political party or, or anything in particular. Like, I think that anytime you do, you know, any politician just by virtue of their own job, they're representing a sector of the population and they can't really be objective or, you know, honest for the most part. and it doesn't really, you know, I, I'm not um, justifying any, you know, any government or any institution uh, or anything like that. But I just wanted to point out and mention, you know, I just, um, you know, it, from outside, it seems like the government of, of El Salvador is taking all these like authoritarian moves and and they're like really cracking down on, you know, public um, free speech and all these things. But from the inside, most of the people that I met, like overwhelming majority 
uh, were incredibly uh, happy and like thankful that they have this new government where, for example, there have been implementations in the in aspects of uh, education and health uh, infrastructure, just like building roads and stuff like that. Uh, um, what used to happen typically for, you know, all these people used to tell me like uh, monies that were design designated for specific projects were spent you know, and say like they're going to build a water tower and they pay a contractor. The contractor accepts the job, starts building it. They just steal the money, you know, or part of it. It's just very poor managed. A lot of people make money, but then the, the government already spent the money. So the project, there's no more funds for the project. And so there's a mid halfway finished, you know, project and there's no more money. And basically that's where we're at, you know, so people don't get the services spending is being done anyways and there's no way of like you know um if uh making efficient or effective um accountability so all of a sudden with this new government they have been noticing these changes you know whether it's um you know big or small things but the fact is they you know a lot of people that i met personally told me how how like happy they were with this new president how so many things have been changing how they notice they can see you know actual progress being made in their communities of, so for example, housing projects, um, the laptops for kids that go to school, shoes for kids that go to school, right? Like just, you know, things that we, a lot of times in, in, develop, in more developed countries, we take for granted because we expect that, you know, obviously roads should be, you know, fixed and obviously, you know, public spending, there's like a bare minimum that we're accustomed to. But in some of these developing countries, that's not always the case and um it seems like most people are very you know glad and um you know very like thankful that that the government has taken the stance uh not just with the bitcoin part you know like the bitcoin part is definitely like um it, it enables the sector of the population like that 70 percent right to actually participate as well but just overall, even the opposition themselves were, you know, they, they couldn't help but point out those things. You know, I, I, I spoke to people that were directly against Bukele and I was like, why? You know, what, I'm very curious. I want to know because most people that I talk to, everyone just loves this guy. Like he's like the most lovable person, apparently, you know, I'm like, that's crazy. And, uh, you know, the main uh, criticisms were related to accountability, to the fact that they're not uh, being very clear and like what, how much money is being spent? Where is this money going? You know, like um, they're not being very open about, you know, like the moves that they're making. Um, so the opposition obviously has a, a, a big concern about it, right? Like they want to know, hey, you know, like it's, it, you know, it's our country, right? But Kaylee needs to be transacting on the blockchain. Then there wouldn't be any accountability questions. Mm -hmm. Well, he, he's, he, you know, I found it interesting too, because he's, he's like one of the first like millennial, um, leaders of a, of a country, right. He was born in 1981. So he's like an elder millennial, but it's, it's, and then he's the one that introduces Bitcoin. So maybe we just need to get more millennials in office and then we'll start having more, more cryptocurrency as, as national legal tender. Definitely. Definitely. Well, in fact, he, he, I kind of, uh, he was, um, initially he was the mayor of a small town. Um, then after that small town, he turned into the mayor of the capital city of the country, and then he turned into president. But by the time he was the mayor of that big, of the, of the, um, uh, of the, what is it? The capital city, uh, he created his own party. So there's two, there's left and right. 
if you will, you know, like Democrats and Republicans. And they he created a third party, which is kind of like in the center, to put it somehow. I mean, it's not, you know, hard to be in the center uh, these days, really. Like, what is even the center, right? But um, but he did create a, a separate party that is called New Ideas. And that, this is where all this, like, new, you know, implementation and all these new ideas are coming from. So pretty interesting. I, I definitely, you know, I, I'm very curious to see like how this is going to play out and, you know, I'm definitely going to be following the situation, but I, I just, you know, I think it's like very inspiring, if you will. That's a, that's a strange word to use, but, uh, you know, to hear, you know, that some governmental bodies like authority is taking notice and actually wanting to change things for, for the people that need it the most, I'd say. Yeah, that that is really inspiring, and and I didn't know that he had created that new political party. So that that's um you know a good good stab at at you know bridging the the divide. So well, we really really love this conversation. It was awesome. You know, we met you at Lucidity and and really you know, connected on the the Bitcoin and uh, the the narrative that you're telling us, and and we're really glad to get to hear your perspective and and you know the people that you talk to in El Salvador. And you know, please do keep us in the loop on your project. Um, if you end up putting together a documentary or you know whatever you're doing on the technical side of it, definitely uh, please keep us informed and uh, and we'll make sure to share it with our listeners. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, it was great to it was great to hang out with you at Lucidity. You, we we met you in line to take showers, and then you came to our talk at the Steve TV, and we're in the audience there. So it's a come full circle now that I have you on the podcast. So um, it's been great. It's been fascinating. I've learned a lot, and I, I'm sure our listeners did too. And we're just really grateful for your time and, and sharing all your experiences and knowledge with us. Uh, happy to be here. <laughs> Thanks so much. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please leave us a review. We'd like to give a big thank you to our friend Matthew Patrick Donner, who's responsible for the Block Explorer production, including our music, mixing, and editing. Thank you for exploring the world of blockchain with us. Crypto is changing the world. We're here to ensure that you're ready. Please subscribe to our podcast and share this with any of your friends and family, and especially those that might be in the Southern Hemisphere. We look forward to sharing our next episode with you. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.